G'day guys, welcome to episode 200 of Talking With TK. I'm your host Tristan Cannell. Who would have thought that I'd have reached 200 episodes? It's been a few years passing, but uh, just a big thank you to everyone, not only listening today, but who have downloaded any episodes over the 200. Couldn't have done it without you. You know, appreciate all the support, whether it's messages, catching up in real life. You know, I'm always up to talking to everyone that listens to the show, so... Yeah, big thank you to everyone. Big thank you to my family and friends who have supported me along the way. Big shout out to the Diamond Tina Podcast Network, the boys from Batuta. They really do always look after me and always give me some great advice. So big shout out to you boys as well. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to get it bigger and better. Got some big plans for 2022 to increase the show. If you're into your fantasy league and tipping and things like that, it's going to be a new midweek show as well to complement the interviews that are going to be happening on Monday and then also possibly Friday. So I'm just going to see how much time I've got, but I do definitely want to expand the show and hopefully get more and more in person as this kind of, you know, the corona kind of, you know, goes down and we can get back to a little bit of regularity. I would like to obviously do that as a priority. So whether it's your first time here, you know, on the 200th episode or you want to catch up on some of the, some of the episodes, check out it all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. Hit up your favorite podcast app, Apple, Spotify. If you can, a lot of people have been leaving me reviews, so that's really, really helpful. So jump on Apple if you haven't yet, and please leave me a review. You can get in touch, easiest way, email talkingwithtk, try Tristan at talkingwithtk.com. Social media, you'll find me at talkingwithtk across my Twitter or my Facebook, or hit me up on Insta. It's at Tristan Nell. All right, today's episode is sponsored by Manscaped. So guys, get your, your grooming into gear, whether it's a gift for yourself or you know a gift coming up for Christmas. Check out the range at manscaped.com. Use code TK and you'll get 20% off and also free shipping. Now my book, Talking With Champions, that's out now. So it's 75 of my best interviews. You know, all the best bits from it. It's again, like I said, for Manscaped, great for a gift approaching Chrissy. So check it out. Called Talking with Champions. You'll find a Dimmick's Booktopia, Angus and Robinson, or hit me up for, you know, any information about the book. All right, guys, excited for today's guest. And today's guest is Johnny Aloisi. You know, one of my favorite soccer is players of all time. Couldn't have think, thought of anyone better for the 200th episode. You know, he's got such a legendary, you know, that 2005, you know, everyone's going to remember that for the rest of our own lives. So if you're into your football, you know, highly recommend this one. Nice little chat between his playing and also his coaching life. You know, he's a great fella. And I'm pleased to introduce John Aloisi. All right, guys, my special guest today is John Aloisi. John is a legend of Australian football whose journey started in Adelaide and took him to the top flight in England, Italy, and Spain. He's capped 55 times for the Socceroos, including scoring 27 goals and also will be forever known as the man who scored the winning penalty to take Australia to the 2006 World Cup. Post-football, he's managed both the Melbourne Heart and Brisbane Raw, while he has also been working in the media for the likes of SBS, Fox Sports, News Corp, and also Optus Sports. Welcome to the podcast. John Aloisi. John, welcome, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Ah, absolute pleasure, mate. Now, first things first, mate, like a lot of of the athletes that I have on have always had like a bit of a, you know, an older brother. And I know for you, you had Rossi and he's three years older than you. So, mate, can you tell us a little bit about just those backyard battles between the two of you? We did have battles, that's for sure. 
it um you know what it was it was so good for me to have uh someone that I looked up to um sporting wise especially because Ross was a he was a natural athlete not only with uh football um but also cricket he was a good cricketer he was a good batter and so we used to play a lot of um, sport in the backyard and um and you know so we you know always uh it would end in a fight that's for sure but he was always better than me because he was 3 years older so it, it gave me that uh, that drive to to get better and to keep on improving and to work and um, and uh, you know he was also the, the first one to play in the national league from yeah. our family at 17 so it was also then okay if he can do it I can do it and play with the, the Australian team um, so it, it was it was good for me it actually helped me with my career yeah mate now you know we're in isolation at the moment and during isolation I set myself just a little goal to cook one or two new recipes each week now, before we get into the football stuff, and I know you come from an Italian family, and I come from a Mauritian family, so food for us is huge. So I'm sure the same for you guys. Talk to me a little bit about the food that your grandparents and even your parents used to cook up in a feast. Well, yeah. You know what? The, my grandparents were okay uh, at uh, cooking. Oh, I wouldn't say that they were the best in the world. That uh, My grandma made the best uh, chips, which is not very Italian. But, she, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, um, yeah, we do enjoy our food, that's for sure. At the, you know, the, the pastas and uh, the, the meats that uh, you, they cook and, and, you know, they have in the oven and the, the ragu that, uh, that takes yeah, three, nice. four hours to cook and, you know, so that's uh, it, it's in our blood that we just love our food and enjoy it. And um, I am a, a bad chef, but I'm <laughs> lucky that I've got a, a wife that uh, loves cooking and is very good at it. Nice. Is she Italian also? Yeah, Italian background. Oh, and beautiful. She, her grandma was was sensational, and uh, she still is. She's ninety something, and she can still, uh, you know, make uh, the, the homemade pastas and all that. So. Uh, uh, my wife ended up learning a lot off of her. Yeah, nice. Now, mate, I heard your dad, Rocky, was a huge AFL and cricket man. So, you know, that's kind of strange, especially for an Italian family. But how did you guys, you and Rossi, find football? Well, no, my my old man, um, he was the only one. He had uh, three other brothers that they're all AFL. Mm. um, And he was the only one that uh, loved football, soccer. um, But he played cricket. Cricket was his main sport. And... uh, and so it, it was more from him it, the, the, for the love of the game. That's why we started uh, playing uh, because then my old man became a, a coach at local level. Yep. He coached in the local uh, NPL state league for nearly 30 years. So he coached us growing up. Okay. Um, it, it was always uh, a difficult one to have your dad as a coach because yeah. um, my old man was very old fashioned. He would never give us any praise and if he was going to get upset at uh, anyone in training, it was normally his sons. <laughs> so he pushed us and he pushed us hard. But we learned a lot off of him, um, especially his uh, his winning mentality. W- with cricket, he was a, a mean, fast bowler and um, and he would never, ever give up and, and make sure that uh, we had that same mentality. Yeah, mate. When you were coming up, well, I remember when I was a kid, they used to have, what, player of the, the day. Yeah, they used to have a McDonald's Encouragement Award. Did you have the McDonald's Encouragement Award? I can't remember if we had it. You used to get a free cheeseburger if you were like, they thought that you improved from week to week. That was, yeah. 
Well, then it wouldn't have come to me. <laughs> <laughs> Did he make you captain or anything? Um, no, he didn't. He didn't. He, he, what he did say to me at very very early on in the season when I was playing under him is that you have to be better than the others. You 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 can't just be the same. You have to be better. Yeah. Um, or else I can't play you. Um, I remember one time we were, I was only, I think I just turned 15. I was playing in the state league um, and my old man was the coach. And we had, um, you know, the players were all older than me because it was, uh, um, you know, just under the National League, the old A-League. Yep. And uh, I was on the bench and the striker wasn't doing his job. Uh, and so my, my dad took him on, uh, took him off after 15 minutes and, and threw me on. And he said, make sure you do well. <laughs> I was like, that's a lot of pressure. Thanks, Dad. You know, I'm replacing a teammate that got dragged after 15 minutes, which doesn't happen very often. And um, luckily, I went on and scored a goal, and we ended up winning the game. Yeah. Now, John, I heard you with Howie, and you were talking about, I think you three, I think you said you, you buried your capsule, saying that you wanted to be a pro footballer. You are giving out autographs to your, to your teachers in year six or something. But, you know, the big one, when you told the Dukes that you were going to kick the winning penalty to – well, winning gold to take you to the World Cup. Now, that's kind of like a law of attraction sort of thing. But, you know, as a kid, it's very, you know, you're not, you don't know what a lot of law of attraction is. But as an adult, you would. How has that kind of been a big part of your life? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's funny because as a kid, I, I, of course, I didn't know why I was doing it or I, I just had a, a dream and, and a belief that I was going to become a, a professional footballer. Mm. Um, I didn't know where it was going to take me. Um, but um, and I remember uh, burying that capsule with Luke Darcy. He was okay. also in in my class, and uh, and we speak about it regularly. You know, we can't wait to open up that capsule because we're probably uh, we're going to read it, and it's not even going to be what we thought we wrote. But um, when uh, yeah, as an uh, an older professional, it, I I still kept the same sort of. Um, beliefs you know sometimes you have a feeling that uh, you're going to do something special and uh, I didn't play in the the previous two main qualifiers I only played five minutes against Uruguay in 2001 and the qualifier before I was on the bench against uh, Iran uh, for both legs Mm -hmm. and so you know I I was quite angry after the the last time against Uruguay and it and I thought you know I'm if I'm going to be part of this, I'm going to have to make sure that I, I do really well at my club and uh, and that I'm part of that squad because I want to I want to actually go to World Cup um, and then and then I started to 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 read um, you know affirmations and and read stuff yeah. about uh, you know bringing things my way and and then I started to convince myself that I was going to score uh, the winning goal to take Australia to the World Cup and it was it was actually probably. A month before the the World Cup qualifier, that we were out in London, then I said to Viduka on a night out, I must have had a bit too much to drink. <laughs> Couple <of> beers. <laughs> <laughs> I actually said, you know, I'll, we're going to go to the World Cup, and I'll score the winning goal. I didn't know it was going to be a penalty. Yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and I forgot about it, uh, but because uh, I I'd been saying it a lot with my family, but uh, when we uh, after the the, the penalty, uh, Viduka came up to me in celebration. He said, "You said you were going to score the winning goal." So it was something that uh, you know, it was quite funny at the time. Yeah, John, were you big kind of on setting yourself, whether it was big or small goals? Did you write anything down? What was your kind of process with that? Yeah, I did. I, I did write. Uh, I, I when I first went overseas, I went over by myself, mm. and um, and it was it was pretty hard. I was only uh, sixteen. I was nearly seventeen. I went to Belgium. So to actually 
um, get through the hard times. I'd write down um, a lot of my my goals and um, and you know have a goal setting. Um, I learned that at the Institute of Sport when okay. I was in Canberra, and th- and then you know along the way things don't always go as you plan. So you have these, you know, uh, obstacles in your way, mm. but, it, you know, you, you keep on trying to get through those. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ups and downs in sport, like in, in general life. But, um, you know, I was one to always keep uh, writing things down, reading a lot. I, I, I read a lot of those self-help books and, okay. um, you know, and, and that helped me get through some tough times because, you know, there was a time in England I was out for a whole year through injury mm. I just kept on breaking down with uh, my hamstring and uh, I thought I'd never get back playing. But, um, you know, I still thought and believed I had a lot more to achieve in, in my career and uh, and that kept me going. Yeah. Now, you know, you mentioned before that, you know, you trolled as a 16-year-old in Belgium. How does one get a trial offer and then what happens in these trials? Yeah, so I was at Adelaide City and um, I was in the, the first team there and mm. we had a Serbian uh, player that uh, he, he had a connection, an agent that was quite big in Belgium. Okay. And he said that um, he thought I was wasting my time here in Australia because it was uh, semi-professional at the time. Mm. And he said, you know, why don't you go over? He goes, that they will take you, especially because you're young and talented. You know, then after that, once you get your foot in the door, that's it's up to you. So... He organised a trial through his agent in Belgium. It was in uh, Liège with Standard. Okay. Um, and it was around just before Christmas. It was in December and it was absolutely freezing. It was uh, minus three, four degrees. And wow. I didn't know what had hit me because I'd never experienced anything like that. And um, I had my dad with me and he's such a an Adelaide. Uh, he, he was born in Italy and, and uh, moved to Australia when he was nine and Adelaide and and since then, he, he very rarely goes out of Adelaide. Yeah. Um, and so it was an eye-opener. I was there for two weeks, um, had a couple of friendly games, uh, trial games, uh, trained with the team. But it was funny because not one person, uh, which is French-speaking, not one person spoke English to me uh, wow. during that period. And but when I signed, a, a couple of them started to come up to me <laughs> and speak in English. So it was, uh, it was pretty rough at the start. The first couple of years in Europe um in Belgium were, were tough for me yeah so what is it's kind of like a dog eat dog like were they testing you yeah yeah it's dog eat dog they'll kick you in training they they, they because you, you're you're a foreign player and you're taking a local player's yeah. spot um and that's the way they looked at it they they looked at it as if you know who's this guy we we don't want him taking our spot it, it wasn't uh, in Australia we're used to you know and especially with the Socceroos it was very much a team environment uh, when you first go to Europe it's uh, it's individual first mm. and then the team comes second uh, because everyone's just desperate to to sign a professional contract yep. everyone's desperate to be a professional footballer especially when you're just breaking through and um you know that, that that's how it was. It was it was tough because they they don't care about you. You you just have to you get thrown into the deep end and you have to try and you sink or swim. Did anyone like how long did it take for you guys to make any friends at all? Um, I you you slowly start to make friends. I was quite lucky after about a month. Um, uh, one of the Brazilian players uh, didn't have a place to stay, so he'd come and live with me. And and then, then I started to sort of integrate myself with, with more of the foreign players. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, then when I moved clubs and I understood what it was like, it was very uh, important to, to get yourself involved with the local players because once you, you, you start to integrate with them, then you, you settle in a lot quicker. Um, and so, you know, you, you have to – you can't complain too much about their culture or about their – uh, the city or, or anything like that. You just have to try and embrace it because if you do, then, you, you know, you get alienated pretty quickly. Yeah, mate. Take out the two English clubs you played for. Mate, the pronunciations of some of these clubs that you played at, that, that <laughs> would have been hard enough, let alone making friends and trying to fit into the teammate. Yeah, <laughs> some of the clubs. Well, when I first went to Spain, Spain was probably um, – at the time, the hardest uh, because I, I didn't speak any Spanish. Yeah. At least when I went to Italy, I had a little bit of Italian. My Italian was terrible, but yeah. you know I, I could pick up a few words here and there. And uh, and and the Italians were, uh, you know, because they knew that I had Italian background, that they they uh, allowed me in a little bit easier. But uh, in Spain, I had no idea. And where I went was uh, mainly Basque. Uh, people yep. and um, in Pamplona and uh, and you know I didn't know anything about their culture I knew nothing about uh, you know Osasuna was the name that meant health in in Basque okay. but I, I thought it was a Spanish name um, so <laughs> you know then you start the the thing that you don't talk about in their country is their politics because yep. then you're going to get yourself into trouble but um, they were uh, the friendliest people after and um, probably the place I enjoy playing football the most was in Spain. Okay, mate, I saw that you went back last year. That would have been pretty cool to visit after all those years. Yeah, I went back. Uh, I still got friends there in Pamplona. I still yeah. got, uh, you know, ex-teammates that over in Spain that I keep in contact with and uh, it was it was brilliant. Uh, I, I didn't know what to expect because it was uh, 14 years uh, since I last uh, played there. So uh, my last game was in May 2005 um, it was in the Copa del Rey final um, and it was the only time that Osasuna made the, the final so I think when people realised I was coming into the city they um, uh, social media now can you know uh, let people know pretty quickly that you're yeah. around and, and people started posting I scored in that final and, uh, and people started posting it and all of a sudden um, people are recognizing you again so it was the, the whole city uh, follows the team and um, you know it was uh, quite you know exciting to, to be you know going back 14 years later and people still stopping you and talking to you about football yeah for sure mate now you know I'm sure that you've probably been watching that last dance the Chicago Bulls thing as well but you know when Chicago in that last season used to go to each town it was a big event because it was the biggest team in the world coming to coming to that city when kind of like a Real Madrid or a Barcelona would come to one of those little towns, what was the economic impact and also the excitement of one of those teams coming through? It's interesting you say about the economic impact because it's huge. People don't realise that um, when it, when a team like Osasuna or Alavés who they were playing at, you know, our our cities weren't massive. They mm. were about uh, you know two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand people, and then around you, you've got a lot of villages, but. Um, what it meant to them is that you've got to, not only the supporters coming along uh, from the opposition team, the locals, you know, getting excited. So, you know, everyone's in their bars and restaurants. And, and so for that weekend that they come along, that they generate a lot of money. Yeah. And so when you're fighting relegation and, uh, you know, the, the whole community gets into it because they don't want to see you drop a division because then they suffer 
uh, financially as well. So, you know, it was very similar to the last dance when, when you know, Chicago Bulls come into town, uh, Jordan, uh, you know, comes in and everyone gets excited. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was the same when Real Madrid would come in back in that, that period when I first was there. They had uh, Galacticos, Los Galacticos, and yeah. uh, you had uh, Zidane, Figo, uh, Raul, that the biggest one and the biggest attraction was Beckham. Beckham, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was it was just a massive attraction because, you know, he was a good looking guy. The, the women loved him, the men hated him, um, and uh, you know, it was uh, they were the best team in Spain, the most supported team. And so, mo- no matter where they went, they just there was a, a, a quite a few people following him. And then towards the end, it was Barcelona with uh, Ronaldinho was uh, was the star attraction. And he had that long curly hair, and he just he had a um, an aura about him. It was um, it was always good to play against those teams, and just to see you know what they have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, speaking of David Beckham, you know, before we started, we were laughing that you know, despite the fact you've been a coach, you've got all your hair and you're looking great. But mate, <laughs> Bex has lost all his hair. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Mate, no, Google I thought he just him. shaved it. No, poor fella. He's had to because he because of the isolation, he can't because he's put. That you know the surgery oh, thing, but he can't yeah, do his yeah. surgery because we're in isolation. You can't get to the hospital. Like okay, so yeah, the poor yeah. fella. Like it's a it's an evener. He's had all that life of being the best looking <laughs> bloke in the world. Now I'm going. Oh, poor Bex. Yeah, no, he's still a good looking guy. Oh, I think. No doubt. He can shave his head, mate, and just be still the best looking bloke in the world for sure. Now, John, mate, you know you became you know obviously in Adelaide, semi pro at fifteen. So you're playing against men. Sixteen, you move overseas. And then you're playing in all these big leagues and you're still a kid pretty much. How did you kind of transform your body from being a kid to then being a professional male? Yeah, it it is a struggle at the start because, uh, you know, back then the actual sports science wasn't massive. Mm. It it, it started to become bigger and and in Italy they were very good with their sports science, but they they still didn't give you that much time to adapt. It's unlike AFL here that – you know, they know that there's a, is a four-year period, really, when a player comes in, he gets drafted in. Yep. They know they have to build his body up. Um, the way that in, in football that we build our bodies up is is mainly through games. The more games you play, the, the stronger physically you get and um, and the more robust you get. Mm. Um, and that's hard because when you're first breaking in, you're not always playing on a regular basis. Uh, so you're in, out, uh, you might play youth team or reserve team football, that's not the same um, because you're not playing at the same intensity. Um, the training intensity helps you with your uh, physique, but um, yeah. you know you do do weights, but uh, it's mainly you know the the the, the strength in your legs um, and 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 the core. Uh, we did a lot of um, a lot of bounding, especially okay. in Italy and in Spain, um, and I found that helped a lot. That helped with the explosiveness and 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 that. So yeah, it did take uh, I, I think probably about three or four years for my body to really adapt to European football. Yeah, in that first kind of three or four years, was there an older player in the team that took you under that you went his wing at all? Um, not really, yeah. uh, not at my club. It was more that um, I used to uh, lean on Aurelio Vidmar, who at the time was playing in in uh, Belgium. And so whenever we had a, a day off, uh, and normally in Belgium, all the teams had a day off the same uh, day. You know, you'd play on the Saturday, so you would have uh, Wednesday off. And so, uh, you know, I'd either go drive to meet him wherever he was or he would come to 
um, uh, wherever I was. And then, you know, so I would ask him a lot of questions and he would support me with a lot of things. And it was just good to have, um, you know, that, that person that also uh, was from Australia, from Adelaide, similar background to mine and um, played at Adelaide City like I did. So that helped me, especially in those first couple of years. Yeah, mate. God, he was a gun. He was the first soccer to leave an impression on me. My first game that I ever watched was the was the World Cup tie against Argentina. And Aurelio had the long hair, but he was killing it. Like, for me, I think he's the most underrated soccer of all time. Yeah, I, I ended up doing an interview with him uh, recently, him and his brother on uh, Optus. And yeah. it was, um, it, it, I said the same thing. He, he's very underrated. He uh, he had a knack, uh, a little bit like Bresciano. Um, Finding space, Dale. wasn't it? Just it just knew when to 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 uh, arrive in the box yeah. and, and score important goals, especially for Australia. Um, he was a midfielder more for Australia, but when he played in in Belgium and and the rest of his time uh, overseas, mm. he would play as a striker. And um, you know he he had an incredible knack of scoring goals. And uh, one of the seasons that he played in Belgium, he uh, he was leading goal scorer of the competition. So uh, top player, uh, top professional. Mm. So he was someone that I learned a lot off of. Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, being a striker, you talked before about, you know, you need minutes, especially as you're younger, to build that body up. You know, when you're not playing consistent minutes, like what's the key to getting better? Uh, training. Yeah, you train hard and, and you know, make sure that, uh, you know, you're always trying to improve. Uh, I remember that uh, when I was first in, in, in Belgium, I wasn't playing regularly, but I was only 17. I was in and out of the team. Um, but, uh, you know, the assistant coach was good. He would uh, come back with me and a couple of other players in, in the afternoon. So instead of just having one session in the morning, do a double um, and, uh, you know, that way there I could work on what I thought that uh, I needed to work on, which a lot of it was, as a striker was finishing, um, you know, everything around the box and then making sure that every training session you're there to uh, to be better than everyone else because that's the way that the, the, the head coach will actually select you is if he sees you playing and training at a level all the time. So I think the training was really important, especially when I was younger. Yeah. You know, John, you being a left footer, if they were, if you played in like a well back then a lot of it was four four two so you played two men up front would you prefer to be on the left or the right as a striker? Yeah, I I didn't really have um, I didn't really prefer which side. Mm. What uh, you're right about the four four two and and that probably through the most of my career we played that system and it was important to have a good relationship with your. First of all, uh, your partner up front. Now, so when you, yeah, you, your fellow striker goes short, you're the one that's running in behind. When he goes in behind, you're coming short. And then you should actually try and stay close enough to each other that uh, you can combine together. And um, that, that was important. And that came, uh, that came with training, but that also came with playing games together. And then the next one was uh, your wide players because, uh, you know, back then it was your wide players were crossing the ball most times yeah. and uh, it was getting an understanding of when they were going to cross the ball, um, where you could make your run, your timing of your run. Um, and so it, it, I didn't really care if I was on the left or the right. I just wanted to, to have that understanding with the players around me. Yeah, what about your striking partner? Because, you know, over the years you see a lot of different sort of styles. You know, you, you tall timbers. You know, you've got your Josh Kennedy styles that are seven foot eight. Then you've got your Dukes who are probably a little bit bigger than you but are good at holding the ball up or maybe someone smaller like a Harry, but he's got that speed. Like what's a preference for yourself in terms of a striking partner? 
When I was younger, I, I um, actually used to run in behind a lot because I, I had the legs too, and then my injuries didn't hold me back as much. <laughs> so I, I actually liked a, a striker that could hold the ball up. Um, and then, you know, as long as your wider players could actually make runs in behind so they stretch the opposition. Um, and then, you know, through the years, I played with different types of uh, strikers that. Uh, when I got a little bit older that, uh, you know, I needed the other striker to be that one that could stretch the defence and I was the one that would come towards the ball a little bit more. Um, I love playing with Aduka because, uh, you know, he would actually, he could hold the ball up all game if he needed to yep. and, and he would just draw the opposition in and then once he lays it off, then there's more space for you. So um, we grew up uh, at the Institute of Sport together and played, you know, quite a bit in our junior years together. Um, but then overseas, probably the best partnership I had was with uh, a striker called Sava Milosevic, who okay. had a similar style uh, to Viduka because a lot of the defenders then start to focus on on these these players here. Um, so, yeah, most strikers that I played up front with, you end up finding a way to combine and, uh, and a way that you're going to connect. Yeah, it's, it's probably a little bit disappointing that you, you didn't get to start up front with Vadukes more because especially after the Confederations Cup when you killed it, you pretty much put your hand up to be a striker, but then they changed coach. And with the formation change, Gus liked only one striker up front. So that kind of killed it. And when you got your captain, he's always going to start up front. So that kind of killed the notion of you guys coming together. Have you guys had a, a bit of a chat that you would have liked to have played a lot more up front together for the Socceroos? Yeah, we did. And even in that period, we used to get frustrated that, uh, you know, we weren't... um, uh, The Duca liked playing with another striker because Mm. uh, when he was in England, a lot of the time he he had someone else up front with him. Um, And then with the national team, he used to get frustrated a lot because he still did an amazing job, but he wasn't scoring the goals that he was liking. uh, Well, he would have liked to have scored for the national team, but... um, that wasn't really his role because he was the lone striker that had his back to goal quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but he felt that if he played up front with someone else, that he would have had more space and more opportunities to score. We ended up playing in the Asian Cup uh, soon after together, and uh, and he did. That's when he started scoring more of his goals. Yeah, it's, it's right at the yeah. end. Of his career. It's actually a really good observation because, like, when you think when he remember that game against Liverpool for Leeds when he scored those four goals, like that showed what quality of a striker Mark Viduka really is. But like you're right, at Socceroos level, he was literally creating it for everyone else. He hardly scored. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, it, it, you know, he probably will never come out and say it, um, but I think it did frustrate him um, a lot, especially in that World Cup period because you know, he, he wanted to, to do well. Um, and, and he knows and he knew that he was playing well, but... Um, you know, as a striker, you want to also be uh, contribute with goals, and uh, and he didn't get that opportunity. But you know, he's probably um, along with a couple others uh, the most talented player that we've produced. He's the, definitely the most talented striker that we've ever produced. Mm. He's uh, amazing uh, skill level. Um, could score goals from nothing, um, and you saw with Leeds what he was able to do. And then Middlesbrough, uh, Newcastle, he had those injuries. But um, amazing striker and a great person as well. Yeah, just on the soccer, as you know, early in your career when you had to write the letter to FIFA saying that you didn't want to represent the Socceroos because your club wouldn't let you represent them at the, was it the youth? World Cup was it? Yeah, it was a Youth World Cup. It was a, that was a, a hard uh, time for me because I was just breaking into uh, Royal Antwerp and I was only seventeen. And yeah. um, 
and uh, I was one of the only players at the time that was uh, overseas and and we had an under 20 camp um, in Holland so I yep. went and joined them and um, we played a couple of games and and I remember after we, we played Ajax and at Ajax at the time had a really good youth team they had Patrick Clover up front and, oh, wow. and a couple of other players that ended yeah. up becoming big stars and and we beat them three one and uh, in that game it was myself and and, and Dukes up top uh, Josip Skoko um, we had Clint Bolton in goal we, we we had a really good side and and I sat down with um, Les Scheinflog, the, the the coach back then and and said you know. Um, I want to play in the World Cup, um, which you're away for five weeks, uh, but is it okay if I don't uh, come for the qualifiers, which was through Oceania? With the side we had, we're going to qualify easy. Yeah. Um, and I said, because my club uh, don't want me to be away for 10 weeks, you know, at five and then five. And uh, he said, yeah, no problem. It shouldn't be an issue. Um, and then, you know, uh, just before the qualifiers, uh, he, they called me up and said, you have to come. And, you know, I told my club and my club were – not happy at all and it was going to you know they said you know we might have to release you and uh, and and I was going to lose my deal and uh, and whatever else so I had to make a decision what was going to be best for my future I always wanted to play for Australia and yeah. I knew that I always would end up playing for Australia but at that time I felt that I needed to try and um, make it in Europe and so I wrote a letter and said that uh, if they don't allow me to um, uh, stay and, and, and just come for the World Cup, I'm going to have to say that I don't want to represent Australia anymore. And wow. I had to write that to FIFA. How does how does one reverse that, though? Do you have to write another letter, reversing the letter? Um, you know what? I can't remember that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do remember how it, it came about that I ended up um, getting selected again for the national team because uh, Terry Venables was in charge uh, in 97. Yeah. And um, Raul Blanco uh, rang me up. Uh, who was one of the assistants, and uh, he's, he was involved in all our national youth teams as well. And he knew my situation, so he rang me up and said, do, do you want to represent Australia? I said, yeah, yeah of course I do. Um, and so I got called up into the camp and sat down with Venables, and he said, uh, are you you know, fully committed? I said, yeah, that's all I've ever wanted to do is play for Australia. So I, I remember that meeting. I can't remember writing a letter. I might have had to or, <laughs> or got someone something. to write it and yeah, just sign yeah, it yeah. off. Yeah. Now your debut was in Macedonia, right? Yeah, yeah. One nil we won. Um, was it hostile the there? Vidma scored. Hostile in Macedonia? I can't remember if it was hostile at the time. Uh, I, I remember that it was just exciting for me because it was my debut and and I started and uh, and we won one nil with uh, with a Vidma goal and um, but I can't remember it being too hostile. Uh, I don't think they had much of a crowd there to be honest. Yeah, mate. Socceroos, you know, you've been to Iran with one hundred and thirty thousand. You've obviously been to Uruguay twice. You've played all around Spain, Italy, Belgium, England. Like, talk to me a little about maybe two or three of the most hostile places and maybe a situation where maybe you were even scared. Yeah. um, uh, Iran was hostile. Mm. Um, Iran was 130,000 and it was all men. Uh, I think there was one lady there that was from uh, uh, the FFA offices that she snuck in. And uh, What about the hotels? Are the hotels you The, the hotel scared? wasn't great in Iran. The yeah. hotel wasn't great in Iran. <laughs> back, then, back then, it was um, – you didn't have any of your Netflix or anything like that, so you couldn't get any, any movies yeah, yeah. or anything. So it, it could become quite boring, and, and there was no English television and um, – and I remember the food. We had to actually be careful. We, I think, we brought our own chef because they didn't trust what Poisoning. they were going to yeah, give us. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so it, yeah, that wasn't the greatest uh, hotel, and uh, the stadium itself was uh, yeah, that was hostile. Um, but it was um, also a great experience because you know mm. when do you get to play in front of that many people? Um, uh, and then uh, probably Uruguay the first time we went over, it was a, that was a different atmosphere. You know, we got to the airport and when we landed and we're walking out um, the uh, the doors to go onto the bus. And they've got about 30, 40 guys, you know, abusing us, spitting on us, yeah. uh, throwing things at us. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect. So that that became a little bit um, scary. Uh, they were never going to hit us, but yeah, yeah. It, you didn't know that, you know, it was. Uh, what well, would I you did do? Did out. you like to shield yourself? Like- yeah, well, yeah you, you just shielded yourself. You, you ducked and and just quickly went on to the bus. I felt so for Frank Farina because he ended up having spit all over his face. Oh, it was. It wasn't great, um, but I ended up finding out from Uruguayan players that I ended up playing with after that in mm. Spain, and they said that um, they they pay uh, some homeless people to come and abuse us, wow. <laughs> to scare us. <laughs> and so it was. Uh, we didn't leave the hotel. I remember that we just used to go from hotel to training ground, and the training ground was was not great. Um, there'll be police escorts everywhere, police uh, guarding our training. Um, but the next time we went to Uruguay, we were a lot smarter. Um, Gus Hiddink, uh, got us to train in Argentina for the week. Um, and it's only a short flight. It's only about 40 minutes over the, the river, um, from Buenos Aires to Montevideo. And, uh, we ended up, um, only staying there the night, played the game and then left straight away. So we, we were ready for what to expect the, the next time round. Yeah, mate. I saw you and Dukes having a bit of a laugh about Goose picking on you, mate, at training. He wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't, he wouldn't give you a crack. <laughs> you know, Goose, he, he used to play mind games. Goose was very big at playing mind games. He was um, that type of uh, manager that uh, he he was only in there for a short period, so he knew that he could actually do that to certain individuals. Mm. Um we a lot of us used to get quite angry about it, but um, it, it also galvanised us a, a little bit as well because <laughs> we didn't like what he used to do to some of us. But um, you know, it, he didn't treat me that bad. He was uh, uh, he was quite um, switched on when he knew that he had to get something out of you. Um, I remember just before the Uruguay game, I could sense that I wasn't starting and, and I was, you know, a little bit angry mm. uh, because I wanted to start. Um, and, um, you know, I was running around the pitch before training and Gus goes, uh, he called me over and he goes, do, do you think I could uh, hit the ball from the halfway line here and hit the crossbar? And I said, no chance. And he said, I'll bet you a bottle of wine. And I said, yeah, okay, no problem. And he gets the ball in his hands and volleys it and it bounces just near the penalty spot and it, bounces and hits the crossbar wow. so i had to go get a, a buy him a bottle of wine uh, that night and because he knew what it was like in in spain that would have a glass at dinner um he came around and offered everyone a glass of wine um, and didn't have any himself so you know that was a nice gesture i thought mate you should have got him a goon bag one of those the cask wine <laughs> ones just to show him the real aussie way right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he would have never played me then <laughs> I bought him a good bottle. <laughs> I wanted to play. Yeah, for sure, mate. You know, you mentioned before, you know, Terry Venables, and then obviously you just mentioned Gus. You know, for yourself, because, you know, coaching is a big part of your life as well, and I'm sure that across the years, all these influences from your dad all the way through to your professional coaches, they all kind of shape who you become as a coach yourself. Who would you kind of say 
kind of reflects mo- most from your playing days into what you've become as a coach? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I, I think I've taken a lot from every uh, coach that I've had, but yeah, I think you have to still be yourself. You know, you've got your own personality, um, and you, you know you can't try and be something that you're not. And um, but you know, Terry Venables is a great man manager. Mm. Um, what I noticed with the, the best uh, coaches that I had were that they made things simple for for the players. And um, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world. And but if you're passing too much on to the players, then they start to get confused. You know, if you can actually simplify it and 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 put it in a um, a way and and a structure that uh, it, it makes that they they don't feel the pressure when they're going onto the pitch. They know there's three or four different things they really need to think about and worry about, mm. and then other than that, it just becomes natural. And um, but then the, the man management side, you know, I, I learned off of uh, Venables, yeah. Goose. Um, uh, Another uh, Mexican coach, Javier Aguirre, who, yeah. who coached me in Osasuna, he, was, uh, he took uh, Mexico to two World Cups. I noticed that you can't treat everyone the same because, mm. uh, you know, at the time as a player, you don't realize it. But uh, when you become a coach, you realize that everyone's different. So you can have your guidelines and your rules, but you, you also have to treat uh, each individual different because they are different. And, uh, and I, th- I think that the most important thing is know that they're people. Yeah. If you, yeah, I can understand that they, you know, they've got lives that they're people. Um, that uh, and, and they, the players will respect that. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Now, playing versus coaching is. I hear some people say they love coaching more. Some people say they love playing more. For yourself, have you kind of weighed them up at all yet? Uh, look. You get a different feel from both. I, um, I think playing is is a lot easier to to come away with a good feeling mm. um, because if you're you're starting and as a striker, if you've had a good game and you scored a goal, but your team's lost, yes, you're upset because you lost, but you still come away with a little bit of a positive. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas as a coach. Uh, I don't think you're ever completely happy because you're always striving to get better. You're striving for more. You never can. Uh, you can never relax at all. You you always have to make sure that you're you're ready um, because there, there's things that will pop up that you're you're not expecting. I think you have to expect the unexpected as a as a coach. But um, you know, I love both because I love the game so much. Um, you know, I, I love the, the the management side of uh, being a coach. But uh, as a player, I love the you know. Uh, running around and um, playing a sport that I've grown up with and I was passionate about, and yeah. um, but there are ups and downs in both. Yeah, now that you've you know you've done a number of years in media as well, you know for a professional player, it's not easy always to control what comes in and out of the media and even understanding what they are thinking. Like now that you do know what the media is all about, would there be anything different that you would have done during your playing and coaching career? Um, the coaching career at the start when I was at Melbourne Heart, um, mm. you, you know, I, I was used to talking in the media because I did it as a player, um, but I didn't totally understand the, the media side. Um, but when I was in between uh, my job uh, at Melbourne Heart and Brisbane Raw, I was doing mainly Fox Sports. Yep. And, and I started to understand what the media are trying to grab and you know you know they don't watch a 90 minutes like a, a coach watches the 90 mm. minutes they, they don't uh, totally understand what a player is going through because you know they, they a lot of them haven't been players 
So they have to get, you know, one little bit out of a game and, and they go with the, you know, the, the main story really, yeah. whatever the main story is. So I started to understand that when I went back in and, and start to get, you know, not get too upset about what they're seeing or what they're saying. Um, and I, I think if I had that experience as a player, you know, I wouldn't have got uh, down about if I heard a negative story. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you soon you, you're able to do all that as a player anyway because you, you get used to it over the years. But when it first happens to you, it's hard because, mm. you know, you, you pick up the paper and, and on the paper, you know, it might be a full-page spread, especially in Italy or Spain, and, and you're getting slaughtered. Mm. And, you know, it's like, oh. How do I how do I deal with this? And then you walk down the street, and because everyone's read the paper or watched TV or whatever, they start slaughtering you. And it's just like, oh, you know, this is not easy to deal with. But the, the, I think the more experience you get, the more you understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. What about like in terms of like managing your own mental health? Because you know, for yourself, you know, you go, you go into coaching, and you could have a season where you win a championship, and the next season you could come last and lose your job. You know this going into your job. Like at that time when people like I remember like at the end of your heart bit and then at the end of your raw bit like you'd be winning games and you'd be the champion of the world one week and then the next week you'd lose and they wanted to get rid of you that week. How do you handle that? Yeah, I think it's very uh, important to stay balanced um, and very important to like, as as a coach you can't think about um, you know you losing your job or. Uh, because then your your decisions aren't going to be clear. You you need to be clear in what your your decisions are going to be, whether you're struggling or whether you're doing really well. So you know when you're doing really well, it, it, you're not as good as what everyone's making out, and when yeah. you're doing not so well, you're not as bad. But you do have to reflect on what you're doing day to day. There is normally a, a process that uh, you know you should follow. Um, but I think you know it's important. It's hard, but it's important sometimes to disconnect as mm. well. Um, the way that I would try and disconnect is that um, I learned how to meditate towards okay. the end of my career, and and I found that helped a lot. Uh, was that like a guided yeah. one or? Yeah, yeah, is is uh, I can't remember. It was transcendental. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, I learned how to do it. Yeah, um, even though I don't know the name to it, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then also try to spend time with with my kids. Um, you know. Sometimes that's hard as well because you still got thoughts in your head about certain things that you know either training or about a player or about a board member or about yeah. whatever. And so you know you you try and stay connected with them, but sometimes it's hard because you've got other things on your mind. Yeah. Did you ever do any work either when you were playing or coaching with the sports psych or anything, John? Yeah, I've done some work with sports psych. How was that? <laughs> sports sites the the good ones can be really good Um, and and sometimes it can actually still as as a player you don't want to always think too much about your your game because then you can actually end up um, draining yourself uh, as well and 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 overcomplicate things and uh, you know I I think that uh, I I got more out of it after when I was uh, coaching but not for the players to use so much is me to understand all right what the player might be going through and and what words to use because words are very important when you're talking to a group or talking to an individual um you know sometimes you just have to see how an individual is um when you when you first see him in the morning if it, we used to shake hands every morning um before training a, a player would come up to me say hello and i could see how they were feeling just by a handshake and looking mm. in their eyes so then I knew that I might have had to, you know, have a one-on-one conversation or, 
or make sure that I encourage them in training, um, you know, try and be positive. And then, you know, if I see someone uh, is coming there and not switched on, then I know that what I have to do. So uh, sports psychs can be good, but sometimes that's their main job and they can overanalyze and, you know, and, sometimes it's too much for individual players. Yeah. Now, John, have you had a chance to really think about the legacy of your career? Because for yourself, and you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the only Australian player to play in the top flight in England, Spain, and Italy, and you broke the hoodoo to put us back into the World Cup. You're going to be forever known for for both of those achievements. Have you had a good chance to reflect on what you've actually done? Uh more so in this period because uh, I've had to do quite a few of these because, um, you know, a, a lot of people, because uh, live sport hasn't been on and, yeah. and they want to talk about, you know, uh, not only your career but mainly about those special moments but uh, in terms of qualifying for the World Cup, the World Cup. Um, but I'm not one to really reflect and look back. Uh, I'm more one to, to be in the present and also focus on on the future and, yeah. um, you know, it it's funny your career goes past pretty quick and you know sometimes I wish that I uh, enjoyed it a lot more than than I than I did because you know from one game to the next if you're not performing yeah you know you could be out of the team so you know or you're playing against Real Madrid you just want to beat them you don't care that you're playing against Real Madrid and um, you know sometimes when you do sit there and think oh you know it wasn't bad to go to the Bernabeu and 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 beat them three nil but um, you know I, I try and get my players when I'm coaching them to enjoy the moment, to enjoy coming to training. Mm. Um, yes, it, it, there's a lot of pressure in, in professional sport, but the, you have to enjoy the, the process of, of it all, uh, enjoy the, the, the competitive nature of it all, and, uh, and also embrace the hard times because, you know, once you get through that, there, there's, you know, it, it's a good feeling as well. So uh, because it doesn't last forever, your, your career goes past pretty quick. Yeah, in terms of those three big leagues, in terms of being a striker, where did you feel most comfortable playing? I probably um, Italy was at the time I didn't enjoy at all. I was only nineteen, and I found it really hard. They were very defensive, and so then I was tactics, playing in a side. Yeah. yeah, they were very the, the, the tactically they were very defensive at the time, and I was playing in a side that were down near um, the bottom as well. So we we didn't. Uh, win too many games and didn't have too many chances. I enjoyed England because at, uh, when I was there, it was very open mm. and very fast. And, and so as a striker, you get a lot of chances. But where I probably enjoyed my football the most, and it's probably because my all-round game improved the most, was in Spain um, because of the type of football that they played. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just enough to uh, to win. It, you had to win, you know, yeah. also playing good football. So I enjoyed that side. Okay. Now, next, take me to, obviously, the big famous part. You know, leg two, qualify for 2005 against, you know, set the scene for me. Like, in terms of where did you guys stay hotel-wise? And tell me about the the bus drive over from the hotel to Olympic Park. Um, We stayed in Parramatta. I think it was at the Crown there. Um, You stayed in Parramatta? Wow. Yeah, because it was closer to Olympic Park. 
Um, and so, uh, you know what? It, it, it's funny. There's certain things you, you can't remember. I can't remember the bus ride to the stadium. I remember the bus ride from the hotel in Uruguay uh, to the stadium because, you know, every time we went past a, a Uruguayan, whether they were going to the game or not, they were yeah. sticking the finger up at us. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember that well. But um, the bus ride to Olympic Park, I can't remember. I can remember the bus ride back to the hotel and we had – you know, there was nearly a thousand people waiting outside of the hotel for us when we got back in. So that that was uh, quite special. Yeah. Now, you know, in terms of how long before the game, because I know that Gus he plays his cards very close to his chest. Like, when did the starting lineup get announced to you boys? And then did he go specifically to any of you and tell you a specific role that you might be playing in that game? Now, Gus didn't really talk to us uh, individually about the roles. Um, he, the day before the game, we we sort of had an understanding who was playing. He could change it at the last minute, mm. um, but normally he didn't. So when we played against Uruguay, I remember Graham Arnold coming and giving everyone the starting uh, that was starting a bib, okay. and um, and he, he missed out on Harry. And uh, and then you thought, oh, Harry's not starting. This is a bit wow. of a shock. Yeah. But he didn't say anything to Harry. He just let it go. And um, so he knew Harry was angry. Um, but again, that's because playing mind games. He, he felt that Harry at the time wasn't fit enough to play two games in 90 minutes yep. um, plus the travel. And he knew that Harry could be someone that could unlock uh, – you know the Uruguayan defense when he came on, and um, did Harry and say Harry, anything to you boys? Like, yeah, Harry wasn't happy. Yeah, yeah Harry wasn't happy, and it, it was very similar to when um, he left out Timmy um, in the first game against Japan. So yeah. we thought Timmy was starting, and then um, the morning of the game, he, he he did tell Timmy. He called him to his room and said, oh, "I had a sleep, um, and decided not to start you." And that was it. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so and I remember Timmy coming downstairs and he, can you believe it? I'm not starting. So it was, um, yeah, the players that uh, you know obviously left on the bench weren't happy, but you didn't want them to be happy. As a coach, you don't want them to be happy. You want them to be, you know, uh, wanting to start and and then going to prove you wrong. And 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 uh, when they do come on, you know, proving a point. Yeah. Now take me to penalty shootout because you know listening to the other podcasts that you were on. You missed a significant penalty when you were 14, was it 14 years old 14 and under 17s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the day when you can explain it in a sec, but that's yeah. the day. How'd you get over that first? And then what did that bring to the rest of your career? Yeah, it was, um, I, I remember that day pretty well because it was, um, I was only 14. I was playing in Adelaide City under 17s. We are playing a semi final. Um, and I remember it was at a, a place called Croydon, um, which was an old Polish club. Mm. And um, and I took the penalty to to actually was supposed to keep us in the game. If I scored, we stayed in, and, and we we kept on going. If I missed, uh, we were out. And um, I remember the half uh, from the halfway line to the penalty spot was it was the longest walk that I ever experienced. You know, my legs felt like jelly. I was nervous and. Um, and I, and the reason why is because I'd never really taken a penalty before, especially in a, an important game or an important moment, mm. and um, and I ended up missing. And uh, you know, the referee uh, said the goalkeeper moved and uh, got me to take it again. I thought, oh, this is good. Yeah, yeah. I got another chance, and I ended up missing again. And uh. um, you know, I, I felt bad um, not only because I missed, and I felt like I let the team down, but. Um, you know, I walk in the changing room and uh, all my mates are all crying and, you know, these are 16, 17-year-old boys. 
and um, and then I hear a loud scream and it was one of my teammates he punched the wall and he thought it was uh, just uh, timber but uh, it was solid brick behind mm. and he broke his wrist and um and so I felt like absolute crap for that. But uh, it, it took me a couple of weeks to get over. And um, But then I remember saying to myself, you know, whenever I, I uh, put myself into a position like that again or I'm in a position like that in taking penalties, I need to be ready. I need to be mm. uh, confident. I, I So I always used to practice finishing after training as a striker and also practice penalties. And all the way through my career, it would be at least once or twice a week I'll do that. And so, you know, I knew that come a moment that I need to take a penalty, I was going to be ready. And um, the day before the Uruguay game, I, I stayed behind and took five penalties all down that end, um, hit them all the same corner. And um, so the walk from the halfway line to the penalty spot the next uh, time was, uh, you know, against Uruguay. It, it, it didn't feel like a long walk it mm. didn't my legs weren't like jelly you done it was, the work yeah yeah it was I, I knew that uh, if I hit the ball the same as I did the night before in training the keeper have no chance of getting it and we're going to go to the world cup and um and that's all I was saying to myself as I was walking up is um you know hit it the same way and we're going to the world cup um did you, take did you feel more comfortable cup. doing the cross the body is that always just something yourself yeah, I felt more comfortable. I had to, during my career, you know, uh, switch it up a little bit because yeah. um, when you hit the same side all the time, um, before you know up. it, the keeper's yeah, yeah, like yeah. already there. So because the keeper can move across the line um, and um, and a lot of keepers used to move before you used to hit the ball anyway. So yeah. um, I, I started to change it up and, you know, hit it to, to the other side, hit a lot of my penalties down the middle as well because a lot of the keepers would move early. Um, but I felt more comfortable hitting it across my body. I, I felt that I got more power and more accuracy hitting it that way. Yeah. Now, you know, Harry's first penalty, that one that he put in the top net, that takes skill beyond anything for a left footer. Like, that was perfectly just – it's unsavable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, all the penalties were unsavable, even for because he, he missed the goal. Yeah. The, the keeper didn't get, get the but save. He hit it fast, I think, yeah. Yeah, all, all all the penalties were were good penalties. They um they they struck him uh, really well, and um, you know, uh, Harry's penalty was so important because it was the first one. Now, when you're in a penalty shootout, usually if your team goes first and you score first, yeah. It, it gives uh, your team a boost because uh, you know the opposition are always chasing and uh, and the pressure's on the the next penalty taker. So you know Harry's penalty was was uh, crucial and 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 he hit it like he didn't have a care in the world. Yeah. Now, John, from you hitting that penalty, hitting the back of the net, to you running around to I know that you were going towards your own family and friends. Do you remember? Like, is that like a does that become a blur? Um, yes. Look, it seems a little bit uh, surreal now because uh, I've seen it so many times because it's been played so many times to me or whatever yeah. else. So it doesn't feel like it, you know, uh, you remember anything of it other than watching yourself do it. But I, I, I do slightly remember when I first hit that ball and um, my head was down, my body was over the ball because if you lean back a little bit too much, it can go over the bar. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of like a golf swing. And um, and as I hit the ball, I felt great connection um, straight away. And as I look up, I can just see the goalkeeper's going the same way as the ball. Um, 
but I see that he's not getting near it and I could just see it going and, and touching the net. But um, I don't hear any noise at that time. And so I'm thinking, is it in? I know it's in, but I'm not hearing any noise. So it, I start to run off yeah. and, and my face is sort of serious. And then as soon as I see the net sort of move and then the crowd noise, um, I, I could hear the crowd. That's when I ran off and was like a maniac. And, and then I can't recall anything until people were jumping on my back. <laughs> was the shirt off and the run, was that preconceived? The run was the run was I'm running towards where my family uh, were sitting because I knew where they were sitting because I asked the team manager the day before where where do I need to run to when I score a goal, um, and then uh, the shirt wasn't the shirt was uh, was just sheer emotion. Um, I remember watching uh, uh, when I was growing up in the old National League, uh, a player for Sydney Olympic. He scored an important goal right at the end. I think it was in extra time. Yeah, and. Um, and he took off his shirt and ran around like a crazy, uh, you know, player. And uh, and and the commentator was going mental. And um, it was Les Murray actually. And uh, and so in the backyard, I used to like, uh, you know, play a game against my brother or, or practice shooting. And and when I'd score a goal, I'd run around and with my top off and, and wave it in the air. And um, so that moment there must have come back, you know, subconsciously it was there. Um, I didn't plan it. It just there was just sheer emotion. Yeah, mate. Even watching like the replay, still goosebumps because I took my dad that day because I was lucky enough to score two tickets from my mate at work. So it was his birthday, my dad's birthday, and he loves Socceroos. So I got him tickets and obviously got one for myself as well. But still the, the most amazing sporting event I've ever been to. Like the hysteria and the hugs, like – I didn't even know the person next to me, in front of me, like the sheer, I don't know what it was. It was kind of, because I go for the Cronulla Sharks in 2016 when we won the first time ever, very similar, or hugging people. It was just like, I don't know, a monkey off your back. Like, what, what like for you guys as players, like that, was it an instant relief? Yeah, it was. And, you know, when, if you see the, um, when we're on the pitch celebrating, you could see like our faces are we're, we're sort of in shock and we're sort of like, well, this is what just happened. That yeah. was just incredible. You know, what, what a, what a moment, what a, you know, a way to win a game and what a way to, to qualify for a world cup that we've waited so long, the noise, the atmosphere. And, and it's funny you say that because, um, most people that I, I've spoken to, you know, there was a, close to 83,000 people there. I think I've met 160,000 that were at the game. <laughs> but uh, they all say the same as you, that they, they the emotion and, and the way that they uh, were celebrating, hugging total strangers, but it felt so natural. You just uh, you think, well, you know, it, that's what it meant to everyone. Um, I was just fortunate to be part of that side and part of that moment, but what it meant to everyone that followed the Socceroos, followed sport um, in our country, it, it meant a lot. Yeah, because I think it was – I reckon it was apart from Anzac – because on Anzac Day, you feel truly Australian. That day, it felt like I was Australian, you know what I mean? Because we saw you guys stumble so many times through all those years, have to take all those losses on the chin, and then you finally did it. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what I felt. I felt like I was Australian, man. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's that's the beauty of sport as well um, is that it can bring people together. Now, 
we didn't realize at the time we only started to realize when we went to the world cup and and uh, occasionally people would jump on the computer that was there because we couldn't get anything on our phone mm. and and they'll show you know oh look what's happening at federation square look what's happening here look what's happening there and look at the people celebrating on the street we'd never seen anything like that before in australia yeah. um but it, it our game um can bring the whole of australia together the community because you know it doesn't matter what background um, that you're from, um, and and all over Australia, girls and boys um, can play and follow the game, and um, and that was the first time that we really saw that actually uh, football can uh, unite everyone, and uh, and we noticed that uh, during the World Cup. Thank God there's no social distancing, mate, because mate, the <laughs> pubs the pubs were full. You're like this at a pub at the game. Everyone like like I said, hugging strangers. Like yeah. We probably yeah, had Corona it, back then. Jesus, <laughs> Johnny, what was what was tougher, the prep into Uruguay or the prep into the 2006 World Cup? Oh, definitely the prep into the 2006 World Cup. The, the Uruguay game, we didn't have to train that hard because we we're during the season. We we're ready. We we're feeling uh, fit. Um, you know, so most of us were playing regularly at a, at a high level. But when you're going into a World Cup, you, you, your season's finished. You have a little bit of a break, mm. and then it was a uh, goose. Goose really pushed us, um, along with uh, our conditioning coach back then, Anthony Korea. We trained hard, and I mean to a breaking point. That um, we just you're thinking, well, if we get through this, we're not going to just be uh, fit. We're going to be the fittest team at the tournament. And I think that was uh, again, you know, something that Gus wanted to to have that in our heads that we believe that we're fitter than everyone else. So our game was never over. We were always gonna. We felt we always could run over an opposition, and um, and it did happen. You know, against Japan, one nil down, seven minutes to go, we ran all over them. Against Croatia, the, you know, two one down, we needed to get to two two uh, to get through the group stage, and we ran all over them. Uh, we felt that against Italy, if it went into extra time, we were going to run all over them. Um, so, you know, the, the preparation for the World Cup was was hard. Yeah. As a professional footballer, you know, you're used to people knowing who you are. But at the World Cup, hundreds of million people watch every single game. You scored in that first one against Japan. So I'm sure the half of Japan hate you or the whole of Japan hate you. <laughs> but what's it like knowing that hundreds of millions of people know who you are? Oh, you don't think about that, that people know who you are. You, you, you're excited about that the world, um, you know, that, that follow football and follow the World Cup are, are stopping and watching this game because there's only one game on. Yeah. Um, and, and you felt that in Germany that the whole of the, the country was watching. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you don't really realise at the time until after the World Cup and you, you start to go on holiday or back to where you're living and, and you realise that, that – Everyone was watching it, you know, that yeah. you feel like everyone's watching it because they're the ones that are coming up to you. So um, it was definitely the highlight of uh, my footballing career. Um, it was the most enjoyable uh, moment I had in, in my career because of that, because of everything stands still and, and um, everyone focuses on your team. And then that was, that was great, especially being Australian, you know. Uh, when we were uh, coming through the national team, not even the Australians were watching us, let alone the rest of the world. So yeah, yeah. to have the rest of the world watching us as well was special. What's the most – now that you know you are that guy that scored that penalty, I'm sure that when you're out, you get sent random shit where you're at a restaurant or you're at a pub. What's the most random thing that 
a fan has sent you? Uh, sent me or said to me? Both. Maybe uh, either. What's better? Like, oh, yeah, it's, it's always nice to get sent a drink. Yeah. Does, it, <laughs> does that still happen quite, like, quite uh, a lot? It does. It does. It, like when I go to a restaurant or something like that, you know, there will be always um, – you know, the, the, the people might know you in there, might offer you something, but yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I expect it. it no, you know, no, it's always not. it's always nice. But um, it, it's funny when I, I walk down the street and someone might go scream out "Aloisi," and, <laughs> uh, you know, it can be a little bit embarrassing at times uh, because then you you look at them and you think, are they going to say anything else? And then they just they're shocked that it's you and then they just uh, walk away. <laughs> so I'd still be mad uh, if it, when you're 80 years old if they're still saying it. You know what impact you've really had on Australia. Yeah. No, look, I, I can't complain there. Look, I've been abused as well, don't worry, by uh, by supporters or uh, opposition supporters. So, you know, sometimes um, I don't mind if people are at least saying something positive to me. Nice. Now, a couple of questions to wrap things up. All right. Over your whole career, was there a defender that always had your number? Oh, look, um, Probably when I played in Italy, uh, the defender that I thought I had no chance against, mm. and and I felt that because when I played against him, I only played against him once, um, no, twice actually. It was uh, Franco Baresi, the okay. the uh, experienced Italian defender. He just, I just felt like that he, um, he had me in his pocket the, the whole game. He just knew when to actually. Um, come and tackle me. Knew when to just stay off. He, he just it was that smart that I thought. You know what? I, I could play here all all day, and I'm not even going to get a shot on goal, let alone score a goal. Um, but I was only young at that stage. But then after that, I didn't really think that there was any defender um, that had it over me. I had battles with a few defenders. Um, there was a defender at uh, Sevilla, uh, Javi Navarro, who was so rough. It was uh, there was always a battle with him. And back then, we didn't have cameras or VAR <laughs> everywhere, yeah. and so there were. Yeah, there were, you know, kicks and him stepping on my toes and, you know, pinching and um, and you had to protect yourself. So a, a couple of elbows used to go flying here and there. <laughs> nice. All right, let's play a little bit of fantasy football. Now, John, you're starting up front. Who's going to be your starting striker, anyone of all time? And who's your number 10? Oh, anyone of all time. Um, I... That's a, that's a good one. I would actually say uh, Ronaldo, the, the Brazilian. Yeah, he, he was uh, such a powerful striker. When, when when you look at when he was at the top of his game, he was probably um, at that time there the, the best player in the world. Mm. And and just um, it, it's a pity that he had those injuries he had because I think that he would have been compared. He still is compared with Messi and, and Cristiano Ronaldo, but I think he would have been on that level. Yeah. Um, and then you know you'd love to play with someone like Messi. Yeah. Uh, Messi's um, I got to see Maradona a little bit and watch a lot of him, but uh, Messi's been consistently at that level for a long period, and um, only uh, got a glimpse of him playing against him when I was at Alaves because he was only a kid and he came on as a sub. Yep. But um, it was uh, I went to go watch him a few times um, as a spectator slash. Uh, media work and um, it, it was more uh, I was just in awe of watching how much vision he's got um, the passes that he can play the way he skips past the player um, his finishing ability yep. uh, he's just an 
all-round uh, freak when you when you look at it. And, um, you know, he would be someone that you'd love to play with. Yeah, for sure. All right, final question. Similar, but a little bit different. Doesn't have to be soccer-related at all. Now, John Aloisi, you're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would you like to invite to a dinner party? Yeah, again, that's a, that's a tough one because uh, normally, you, you know, you like to invite um, friends, at least for their ex-teammates or so. But uh, watching this last dance, I would love to actually invite uh, Phil Jackson because uh, I think that just the way that he was able to manage, yeah. you know, a, a group. Those of, egos, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's I've read his book and um, it, it's 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 interesting anyway. Um, is that the uh, ask, Twelve Rings one? Is that the book? That yeah, you, yeah, I've read that one as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very good because you know he talks about his time at Chicago Bulls, but he also talks about his time at, um, at LA Lakers, and and so he had very similar, you know. Um, individuals in that side you know you, you had uh, for lakers kobe Bryant that yeah, was, was very much yeah. their leader um and that he could ke- take control of certain situations and then you know watching this uh, chicago bulls uh, the last dance is you know to be able to deal with dennis rodman i i, I think that you need to have something <laughs> special and <laughs> and not only did he deal with him he got the best out of dennis rodman and uh I thought that was, uh, you know, incredible to to be able to put those group of individuals together yeah. and make him a, a a team that could win two triples. You know what I was thinking about the other day when you know we talked about you coming on, and then I was watching the last episode of the Last Dance. Socceroos literally had a last dance as well because that was the end of the golden era. You lost your coach, and it became totally different. And then all you guys that had been through that golden era, one by one, you all went out of the team. Yeah, uh, look, there was a, still a few players that ended up playing in the following World Cup, but it, it didn't look the same. Or uh, after speaking with a lot of those players, it didn't feel the same. It, it is, you're right. It was was sort of um, the last, you know, dance for us. But um, we didn't know it at the time. Mm. We knew Gus would leave. Yeah, um, we knew a few of us would, would sort of drop off because we we're at that age. And I wouldn't say that we had um, players like Dennis Rodman or. <laughs> But we we did have like training. Sometimes could be very intense, and and you know uh, there would be certain times that there would be uh, I wouldn't say fighting, yeah. But because you, you're you're trying to win and you're trying to push yourself and and whatever else, there would be you know those challenges that would fly in. But you need um, that competitiveness, right, John? Yeah, yeah. But we we weren't uh, what we were different. Now I, I spoke to Andrew Bogut recently, and he mm. said that about American basketball, they're they're very much individual when they they go away. You know, it, it's if they haven't got a team meeting or if they haven't got uh, training, they just go off and do their own thing. Um, whereas in in football, it was very different. Especially our national team we would have breakfast together, have lunch together. Yep dinner together team meetings um any spare moment you're you're with your teammate you're never leaving the hotel so you're playing cards yeah you know you're, you're chatting about things watching movies together we, we had a, a a group you know that you were you virtually were they were your mates um so i think it was a lot easier to mm. for a coach especially to actually uh, deal with that um, you still had egos um I think, you know, everyone's got a little bit of an ego when you get to that level, but it's how you deal with it. Yeah, for sure. Now, John, you've got four more invites, mate. You've got Phil Jackson. Oh, 
Shit, I didn't. I thought you just meant one. <laughs> no, no, you got you got five, mate. This is a oh. this is a unique party, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Watching Maradona, um, the way he acts is is uh, is something funny in <laughs> itself because uh, you know for such a genius um, to see his life just spiral, you know, out of control. Um, it would just be funny to hear his stories and and what he's able to or what he actually. Yeah. Um, did you ever meet him? Um, no, no, I'd never met Maradona, but um, yeah, it, it wouldn't be a bad one to meet just to hear his go. stories. Up to sports, <laughs> come on, up to sports, send Johnny around to, <laughs> to wherever Maradona is. Yeah, um, then yeah, uh, I'm trying to think who else. It's funny that I'm going with mainly sporting people, isn't it? And I, I wouldn't mind. Uh, I suppose meeting a, a, a leader like a Barack Obama yeah. to, to see where where he's come from, and you know, a Nelson Mandela, yeah. um, you know, there's two in itself because they've got very uh, you know interesting stories on on how they they not only got to where they were and how they led. Um, you know, the Nelson, Nelson Mandela one is just um, you know brilliant because. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, to be in jail for so long and not hold that grudge against, you know, the country and, and the people. Mm. He, uh, you know, he obviously was, uh, you know, into, I wouldn't say meditating, but a similar um, thing because, you know, he was always into the present. He, he knew what he wanted and uh, and was able to achieve what he set out. And so that was uh, that's, that's something that's special. Actually, that's a good point. Like we complain about being in isolation for two months. The bloke was yeah. in jail for years getting his rights yeah. taken away from him. And then he comes back and leads the country into its best period. So Yeah, no, that's right. And and then someone that I wouldn't mind actually just having, uh, I've met quite a few times but mm. never really sat down with is is Frank Lowy because, um, okay. you know, yeah. the, the story that, um, because we can sort of relate to living in Australia and, um, but, you know, how he escaped uh, the war, um, you know, and you know what he had to do to to move to Australia, and and then he came here with nothing, and then ended up becoming uh, the one of the most successful Australians. Uh, so you know that that uh, for me is, is a great story. I've read his book, and and I've met him many a times, but um, I just think that what he's been able to achieve is uh, was brilliant. Yeah, for sure. Well, John, I really appreciate you you joining me on the podcast, mate. Like I said when I first connected with you, you know. Me growing up, you know, you were one of my soccer idols, mate. So to, to have an hour chatting with you, mate, it's been absolutely brilliant. I know I'm going to go visit my old man tonight. So I'll get him, I'm going to send him a pre copy. So I'm sure that he'll probably talk about it for a good four hours, mate. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully the audience enjoys it as well. It's, uh, it's always good chatting about uh, football, um, you know, something that I love anyway. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, mate. All the best to the family for the rest of isolation. Hopefully see you back on the big screen soon, too, man. Thanks a lot. And that, guys, was uh, John Aloisi. Again, big thank you to everyone that supported this show and helped me to reach the 200th episode milestone. Please get in touch. We've got five episodes to go for the for the rest of the year. Some Super League legends coming on. Record them all. Steve McNamara, Dennis Betts, Apollo Paralini, Keith Senior, and Willie Poaching. They're the five ahead. Probably going to have, you know, it's going to take us to about halfway through December. Probably be back probably around first week in February. As I did mention, there's going to be a new show with Fantasy League, so look out for that. It's going to be called Talking League, and there's also going to be some competitions uh, and plenty of opportunity for the for 
for the audience to get in touch. There's going to be a hotline to leave your questions for Fantasy League and also tipping. Got a couple of great guests. They'll be on every single week. It's going to be on a Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon. We'll drop. We've just got to figure out a couple of details. But yeah, if you're into NRL Fantasy and also your tipping, stay tuned because there's something big going to be coming up in a not-too-distant future. If you can, please share this show with your family and friends if you enjoyed it. If you can, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps me to get seen by more and more people and I can continue to grow this show. Today's episode was sponsored by Manscaped, so use code TK for 20% off free and free shipping. So that's manscaped.com. Plenty of gifts there for dad, your boyfriend, you know, yourself, anyone, pretty much, manscaped.com. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Thanks again. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK. Mm-hmm.